Hello my fellow Clement Warriors, this is Matt Myers, and welcome to another episode of Clement Tech Cocktails, where we grab a drink or two with best-in-class Clement Tech founders to learn from their life journeys, dive into bleeding-edge technologies, and have a laugh while we're at it. My guest today is Tony Pan, co-founder and CEO of Modern Hydrogen, which is turning natural gas into clean hydrogen at point of source which is critical because we don't currently have the pipes necessary to transport hydrogen far distances. Tony Pan is a serial inventor with over 250 pending patents. Tony is a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations and has done pro bono consulting on global health for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and for the Global Good Fund. He has a PhD in physics from Harvard, where he was a Hertz Fellow, a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow, and a National Science Foundation Fellow. Must I go on? In other words, Tony's wicked smart and full of water. I mean, hydrogen and not hot air. The water's warm, so hop on in and enjoy the show. Tony Pan, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. And what are we drinking this evening? So I must profess, I feel a bit lame because I am a lightweight when it comes to booze. And Uh this is despite being in a fraternity in college, but I am genetically very efficient with alcohol. So I don't drink much nowadays. I'm going to have Diet Coke instead, despite it being climate tech cocktails. Yeah. Okay. Pardon me for the... No, it's okay. It happens very once in a while, but somebody's got to drink something because Mm -hmm. otherwise, why do we call it climate tech cocktails, which therefore me being the host, I, in these cases, though rare, I, I sacrifice myself Mm -hmm. because I invited you here. For service. I thought just to (laughs) amp up the ante, I would try to uh, do two Diet Cokes just to show my commitment. Uh, throughout this podcast so yeah let, let's do it let's yeah i've, I've got two diet cokes yeah. too so we're ready to go quantity has a quality all of its own <laughs> very true and i have mixed my diet coke because you said when you responded to the questions i sent you you said i don't know i don't really drink me i'll throw some gin in there which to me like gin usually you match colors right like yeah. with your alcohol and your mixer but fortunately, I do have my Alley 6 gin, which is a darker noted gin because it's the barrels that it's that it's aged in. And that's what I'm drinking right now with Diet Coke. And are you a big fan of Diet Coke? Yeah, it's my drug of choice. I might go through five a day. My dentist hates it. Mm. Is this like a Warren Buffett move? No, it's a, <laughs> it's a childish move. Coffee's too bitter for me, mm. so this is my source of caffeine. Mm, mm. What about food? Do you have any like interesting food? Passion? Oh, oh God, I love food. What's embarrassing but genuine here? Favorite restaurant, easily KFC. Uh-huh. Man, like as an immigrant, I have this childhood memory of coming to the U.S. Yeah. on a visit when I was 10. I, I immigrated when I was like 18, 19. Yeah. I came to the U.S. first time when I was 10 years old, briefly, since I have an aunt here. Yeah. Took us to an American diner 
And I asked for dessert and my parents were like, you want a child portion? And I'm like, no, I want an adult portion. And then this <laughs> banana float came and it was as big as my face. It was like <laughs> one of my favorite memories. I was just so impressed by American portion sizes and uh, how I can uh -huh. pick up. Okay, so yeah. What do you get at KFC? Just crispy, crispy fried dark meat. Okay, crispy fried dark meat. You just, yeah. you're old school. You go with the hits. Yeah. And so I thought of, I did think of Warren Buffett when you, when I learned that you drink a lot of Diet Coke every day and eat in your, one of your favorite restaurants is KFC. <laughs> I was like, huh, let me just look into Warren Buffett's diet. It's really funny in a bad way. Like I wouldn't want to be Warren Buffett's doctor yeah. or physician, though he is now, I think 92 years old. He's yeah. obvious got very good genetics and he drinks five cans seriously of, yes five cans okay. of diet coke or cherry coke a day that's okay. it'll, it'll, it'll cherry stop. coke for me no no well, cherry that's coke. why he's successful i'm missing that <laughs> yeah and then he eats hamburgers he still goes to mcdonald's mm. apparently who knows it's all folklore this is what he will mm say to interviewers even over in recent years that they'll have family dinners at mcdonald's but you all are in the same camp and i wanted to read something because i find it humorous and please bear with me but I, what i was looking through warren buffett's diet i don't know how we got here but we did and it says in a 2017 hbo documentary becoming warren buffett says what i'm not feeling quite so prosperous i might go with the $2.61 breakfast, which has two Sasha's patties. And then I put them together and pour myself a Coke. Three seventeen is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. But the, but the market's down this morning, so I'll pass up the $3.17 meal and go with the $2.95 meal. That's Warren Buffett, still living on a budget. Yeah. I read his biography and I'm surprised I didn't know about the Diet Coke thing. I know like the mental thing of if I save $10 now, it could be like, that could be like $1,000 25 years from now. There's some mentality around that. Yeah. I'm so if anybody... About, I just like the flavor of KFC. Yeah. So if anybody gives you crap for yeah. the Diet Coke you drink, you just pull Warren Buffett out. And... Exactly. Yeah. I also notice a painting of Einstein behind you as well. Another. There's no reason stuff. behind that. This is one of our office conference rooms. And okay. <laughs> somebody just, I think our office manager decided to get a bunch of science posters up. So got Einstein up there. Yeah. Stuff like that around the office. I wish we, we were doing stuff as advanced as that. We're not quite doing general relativity or true quantum physics in the office. True, but you're doing something more environmentally impactful in a positive yeah. way yeah so let's get to your background a little bit because actually this warren buffett reference might work its way back in very briefly because mm -hmm. we'll get to the wall street ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. portion of your life but before we get there where did you grow up so i was born in taiwan and very fortunately my dad was in the Taiwanese Navy, like a quarter century career Navy guy. So that's the best twist, right? Your parents joined the Navy, you mm -hmm. get to see the world. So I grew up mostly in Taiwan, but I was very fortunate to 
also have been in Korea and Scotland as a kid, which was especially Scotland pretty formative for me. And how old were you when you went to Korea and Scotland? I was four years old when I was in Korea for, I think, uh, it was less than a year. And then Scotland was almost five years, ages five to ten. So really, when I first really had true consciousness, I was, I think I basically grew up in Glasgow, Scotland, and then returned to Taiwan, because even though being born in Taiwan, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any memories before the age of four. And what was your impression of Scotland? I've never been there. The bad part is it's cloudy, dreary, but otherwise it was awesome, man. People were nice. And I think the education system in contrast was a lot more liberating. Because I don't know how much you know about East Asian education systems where you take 10 exams a week. I do actually. In elementary school. Like eventually when I went back to Taiwan as a contrast, I think my elementary school had probably close to 10,000 people. And in your grade, you're ranked from first to last place. Yeah. Right. And you're taking these hardcore exams and it's very rote memorization, answering Mm -hmm. multiple choice questions. And I was lucky to have been spared that early in my life because Scotland was more, I think, Western. School nine to three and you're just screwing around in a playground with worms. You get yeah. to go to the library and do whatever you want. And that was actually better for me. I'm a nerd born that way and I spent so much time reading whatever I wanted in a library in Scotland and having that freedom. Yeah. That was good. Like, I, I think that actually uh, set me apart. And also, frankly, English is the language of innovation in the world. And uh-huh. I got to kind of learn English easily, right? Like kids yeah. get a cheat in le- learning a second language. Yeah. Cool. I actually lived in mainland China for six and a half years. So I'm very oh, familiar with... No way. Where? I lived in Shanghai and in Beijing. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I never made my way to Taiwan, though I heard it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Like really nice people, great food. People speak good English there as well. Hong Kong in a way, but they actually speak Mandarin. And yeah, that's Taiwan. right. I'll pitch for Taiwan, probably greatest Chinese food in the world, because because of the tension and war with the yeah. nationalists won, there were evacuees from yeah. every place in China uh, and forced to live in this tiny island. Uh, All, every single different uh, type of cuisine in China commingled. Uh-huh. And then that was the birth of Taiwanese cuisine. Okay. And for those who aren't familiar with China's history, the TLDR, as they say, or synopsis on that is that Mao fought the nationalists, were defeated, and they fled to the island that is now Taiwan. I don't know if it was called Taiwan before that, but it's fled to Taiwan. And so therefore you have this mishmash of people from all different provinces around China who ended up there. Yeah, Um, that's right. Yeah. Do you guys... This is going off course. Please, people, bear with us. But I'm just curious if you all have to take the Gaokao in Taiwan. Yes, but I didn't because I applied to U.S. colleges. Right. Actually, in secret. I don't quite remember why. I think I felt weird about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, like there's a Gaokao in Taiwan where, again, you're ranked from first to last place in the country. It's it's hardcore. I don't clearly didn't like it. I was fortunate <laughs> to be very clear. My parents had a good vision and set set things up for me. They had the same vision a lot of people have in 
the rest of the world, which is U.S. is still the best country in the world, land of opportunity. Let's yeah. try to get there and raise our kids there. And that was the plan. They wanted to like raise us growing up in the U.S., but it turns out it's really hard to get into the U.S. <laughs> with the immigration lottery and all that. Yeah. So they had applied at like without me or my sister knowing. And it took what was supposed to be like a plan of doing it quickly turned into decades. But when I was, I think, junior or senior in high school, so my, my parents were already old. My sister was going to college in Taiwan, elder sister. But then suddenly... We got the green cards. So my parents suddenly surprised me. Oh, hey, we're going to get green cards. We're old. So we're not going to go there immediately. Sister needs to finish college in Taiwan. But you could go to the U.S. if you wanted to for college. And I'm like, and again, I'm a science geek, nerd tech geek, right? So it's the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton or Silicon Valley for tech. Yeah. I'm like, of course I'm going to go. So it was crazy. Like I had to fly to different, I had to fly to a different city to take the SAT. And uh-huh. I had to apply as an international student. Because I didn't have a green card yet. I just knew it was coming. Mm. But that's how yeah. I found my way to the U.S. And so when you all found out that you were going to receive green cards, did you celebrate by going to Kandaji or KFC? <laughs> no. Maybe. I think Pizza Hut's actually that. Pizza actually Hut? Happened. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you live in China, right? You know how Pizza Hut is yeah. like premium? Yeah. In like in, yeah. in China, East Asia? Mm-hmm. Like, people take lit- people yeah. to dates as a premium yeah. date to the Pizza yeah. Hut. Yeah, yeah, totally. People find it humorous if they go to China and they see a Pizza Hut. Exactly. It's like a nicer, mid-scale, like indoor dining experience where, yeah, yeah, somebody might take a date there to Pizza Hut. It's totally different. It's really funny. Which, Pizza Hut's pretty good. I don't eat from there. There was a phase where, like, um, my early mid twenties, I think where I was like trying to find out, okay, what's better pizza hut, Domino's little Caesars or whatever, which is terrible mm. by the way. Um, and I just landed on pizza hut, um, mm. I think, but anyways, mm. off of the fast food, you're basically were a military brat, right? Like yeah. a Navy brat. That's right. Cause of your father, what about your mother? Oh, my mom was, uh, raised us, stay at home, uh, homemaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. You, you asked me to bring, ask you about your mom and right. I'm, I'm curious why. Oh, why was because of that question, right? Mm-hmm. What was the question? Anyways, the, the, I think it goes into philosophy and values. So mm-hmm. yeah, like I'm very fortunate. I feel I want what. Buffett would call the ovarian lottery, uh, right? Because, yeah, I... Is that what they call it? Yeah, I wasn't born in the U.S., but enough yeah. chips flipped uh-huh. the right way where I made it to the U.S., a mm-hmm. true top-of-the-world developed country. Yeah. Uh, but t- Taiwan was is no slouch, right? By yeah. Even by the time I was born, Taiwan was almost all the way there. Yeah. But it was a very rapid economic advancement, which means if you reverse the direction... Uh, Getting to the point, right? Like I I know what life is like through like my mom, my grandparents of like Mm -hmm. real deep poverty. Like the and and this comes off the wrong way because I don't want to say people's pain is not real or problems are not real, but there are different quantitative levels of problems. Yeah, my mom was the fourth child to be born to her family in like a slumish area. Mm -hmm. She was the only one to survive past toddler age. Wow. Right. 
So yeah. that that's what we're talking about. And that's just like one generation. Like my mom actually still lives with me now. I moved her in when COVID happened. Mm-hmm. Do you think that transfer this transferred to you and gave you a little bit of entrepreneurial grit? I should say yes, because of being interviewed and give all the credit to my mom. <laughs> she might listen to it and elbow you. I think that's honest, though. Yeah, I, I think the general feeling that there's not enough and you have to work hard and fight for things to be better. That's true. Mm. Mm. But the the part for my mom is I think this deep empathy with so i went to college in the bay area and i yeah. to this day i'm astounded and then you probably quiz me on the goldman sachs dark past i have <laughs> so i i've seen like the glitz right yeah. and it's very hard for me to reconcile with like me visiting my grandparents place mm-hmm. and so i think when it comes to climate change i i have this frankly deep suspicion of the solution silicon valley pushes out mm. i call it like the let them eat cake approach, which is, I think, it's attributed to Marie Antoinette, the, the queen that got executed in France. And it turns out, I think, historically, that she didn't actually say that. It's slander. But it's that philosophy of, hey, we can just... This problem's easy. This problem will just right. go away on its own. And I'm like, no, like, there's... People are poor and their lives are terrible yeah. in other places. There's... Yeah, like, there's true suffering in other countries, I think that folks can't really internalize. And even yeah. I can't really internalize because again, I'm, yeah. I'm fairly privileged already. But it made, made me very suspicious of the allow solutions where it just feels like it's economically unfeasible. It's not pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And so this will never actually scale in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to fully jump ahead yeah. narrative wise here, but just to pull out a question from the points that you just made, I'm just curious. You you mentioned having this deep awareness around not having enough. Yeah. Do you think that might carry over into what you're doing today, focusing on energy and like the decentralization of hydrogen, which we'll get to, but do you think there's any parallels there? Yes. Uh, there's a, I think there's a bit of personality around that as well. Mm-hmm. I've often envied very optimistic entrepreneurs. I think you're more likely to be an optimist, uh, an entrepreneur and successful that way. I feel I'm wired in the middle. I'm not like a pessimist, mm. but I am deeply suspicious of all the exponential graphs and everything's got to be magic and things are going to get solved. I think there there is a bit of mentality of change is hard. Mm-hmm. Change is hard. Real solutions are hard. Yeah, I, it's really, I think there's a difference between abundance mindset and scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely not in the abundance mindset kind mm-hmm. of guy. Mm-hmm. Just, so you're more of a pronoia Pete. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I don't think we sent you any of that advice. We have a Pronoia Pete Award in the company. So what is that? What's what's the Pronoia Pete Award? Oh, yeah. It, pronoia is a weird word. It's the opposite of paranoia. To be very clear, I didn't invent it. Some smarter person in the company invented it. But here, here's a management technique. Probably the smartest thing we ever did that is like highest ROI 
is uh-huh. that we use Slack in a company. Yeah. And uh, we set up a shout out channel where people just shout out each other. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome because it's like our company culture is really pretty friendly, collaborative. It's, mm-hmm. I think, very fi- actually pretty noticeably our, our people are like high performance but low ego. So yeah. like when you try to give people a compliment, the default response you'll see from the average person at Modern Hydrogen is, wait, it wasn't just me. Like all these people were involved in making that milestone uh-huh. work. Yeah. And so anyways, we set up this shout out channel and, uh, and the people just naturally populate it with like just patting each other on the back for how other people have helped them out. And it's like one of the best things for company culture and doesn't cost jack shit. Yeah. Anyways, part of my French. But oh, no, it's okay. Award okay. is a more formalized version of it where like every month someone sends this frankly scary and ugly clown. I don't know. It's like someone chose this clown from a goodwill, but we pass it around and people add stuff to it. But it's essentially pronoun means that people are talking good things about you behind your back instead of paranoia, which would be the inverse. People are talking about uh, behind your back, but about good things about you. Wow. And so why don't we surface, bring that to the surface and formally award it to someone who's just been helping other people on the team. And so I this like gets that. passed around. The previous winner chooses the next winner. I like that. I think that's a great, interesting, an interesting management technique. Hopefully some folks who listen to this can steal it as well. Yeah. I, I, I like that. Or borrow it. Let's not use yeah. the word steal. Borrow. Send it out for a loan. It's, okay, you went to Stanford University. What did you study there? Physics. It was between mm-hmm. computer science and physics. Physics eventually won out. Okay. And then you went from Stanford physics. To- Go ahead. Just say belly of the beast. <laughs> it's okay. I, I think it's fine. We should talk about it. Yeah. Oh, it's way worse than what's even on my resume. <laughs> it's worse than what's on your resume. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's dig in. Yes. How is it worse than what's on your resume? Because what's well, on your resume details, is not right? that bad. Okay. Be direct, right? After college, I joined Goldman Sachs, mortgage department, uh-huh. in 08-09 during the financial crisis, yeah. where essentially helped them do things like the big shorts on mortgages, mm-hmm. epicenter of the financial crisis, morality of the whole thing was complex. Uh, I'll defend myself that I never created any of those toxic CDOs, mostly yeah. because by the time I arrived, it was already things were already turning. But yeah, like I, I know there's movies and con- like our most of my de- a lot of my department was holding in front of Congress. I'm sure my emails were searched. It was, it was interesting stuff. I'm trying to think of that movie about it where. There's this analyst and he discovers what's going on at the bank is going to fail if they don't do something quickly. And then they, the bank CEO flies in and they- Oh yeah, like, margin oh, call or something like margin that. Margin call. Was yeah, it yeah, yeah. Was it like in that vein? It, it's just in that vein. I wasn't that, the, I wasn't like the smart one, but I was part of the oh. team. Oh, okay. You weren't the smart one. You're not smart. Yeah. 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 Again, I, I feel I have to defend my- I did what I did. My my dad passed away uh, of cancer, oh. surprisingly, like at age of 53 in my senior year. So oh. I needed cash. I needed cash quickly. Yeah. And when you're a physicist by training, one of yeah. the quickest ways, it turns out, is to go work as a quant, a mm-hmm. quantitative analyst uh, to do very complex financial models on Wall Street. Yeah. So I, I went ahead and did that. I had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you apply for the job and you said, this is what I want to do. 
yeah, they, they gave me like even two departments to choose from, like something normal and mortgages. And I just remember not knowing anything about finance because I'm a physicist. Yeah. And but I remember in 07, when I was picking a job, I was like, oh, I Googled mortgages and there was lots of some early news about this. Sounds exciting. Yeah. And lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, uh, you know how exciting almost collapse of Western civilization. And so how long did that last for? Like, how long were you there for? I was there for a summer for an internship right after my dad got sick. And then also just a year. Just uh, a year. Okay. So you were there for the the blood and gore. And yeah, then, that's the worst part. Yeah, the worst part, the, the ugly part. And then yeah. you decided, actually, I want to be a physicist. I already had decided. So oh, that yeah. was always just a temporary move. Uh, yeah, I had a crazy senior year. I had, had two jobs in college. And I was applying for grad school at the same time. So I was already yeah. accepted at Harvard. And then I went. So I just deferred my enrollment in a PhD program. And then basically the moment my sister graduated and and I, I helped pay for some of her tuition. And at the moment she graduated and surprisingly her job, so her employer still allowed her to go to a job because a lot of people had offers rescinded in a great recession. But the moment she it was clear she could show up for work once getting paid, I quit. Mm. I went straight back to school. That's great to go, get that opportunity to to go to such amazing universities. And uh, so Har Harvard, physics, PhD, undergrad, physics, Stanford, obviously not the smartest person in the room. And then when you finished your PhD, where did you go from there? So I think Goldman polluted me a little bit. I think I can say this now without offending anybody there, but I did not enjoy the experience there. Yeah. But it was good for me in a few ways. Of it forced me to grow up really quickly. I was like one of two guys there that ran the like federal stress test on the entire mortgage portfolio. I had to grow up really quickly. That yeah. was good. But I think there was a little bits of that practical bent that was hammered in me there. And so when I went to graduate school, I thought, frankly, at a point I wanted to be a professor. And that's why you go and do a PhD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Art. I see that the graduate school as my artistic phase, but I mm -hmm. didn't like the lack of a, a, a much more immediate real world impact. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so actually in the middle of graduate school for a summer internship, I decided to work with a deep tech incubator who was spinning out startups doing deep tech in okay. Seattle. I didn't have high expectations of myself of what I achieved in just a summer there, but they liked me and I had many bad ideas. Most of them were bad, but they really liked one idea. And that kind of became the seed of the company today. And so after I graduated, I went there to become an entrepreneur in residence to do the tech and spin out the company. And this was Intellectual Ventures, correct? Yeah, it was a branch called the Invention Science Fund. Okay. Yeah. So you went to Intellectual Ventures and so you had this idea, they liked it. You became a EIR entrepreneur in residence. And then how did you meet your co-founder of your company? Ah, so Gresco is good for some things. Max <laughs> is frankly the better half of our co-founder team. He's better manager. He, he's our CTO and we're a technology company. So his job's more important, but a talker. So Anyways, I'm here. Yeah, we met in graduate school. We had something called the Hertz Fellowship, which is, yeah, I'm on a podcast trying to sell my company, right? It's the most competitive science and engineering fellowship 
in the uh -huh. USA. There's 10 people every year across all fields of science and engineering that can get it. So I'm like one of two physicists my year that got it. And Max is one of two chemists that got it. And the fellowship's smart in the sense that it's not just giving you money to pay for your graduate education. They actually get the people together and try to do cross-pollination. Mm -hmm. So Max and I met socially through that. And then frankly, when I started to do the project seriously, it wasn't a startup back then. It was, it was a tech project. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in way over my head and I need yeah. a partner. And yeah. I knew Max and I called him up and I begged him for help. Yeah, I love how you described him as your much better, smarter, more handsome half. It almost sounds like a marriage. It is. I think <laughs> I'm actually about to get, should I say this publicly? I'm getting married real soon this summer. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I probably why talk not? to Max yeah. as much, if not more than my spouse. Okay. Yeah. They call them work. Hell, we all use this language anymore. It's like we're husband or wife. Yeah. So we're, we're, uh, we're partners in this together for a decade now. Yeah. Is he going to be in your wedding? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> If not, he'd be like, what are you doing? That's yeah, so I know. Like, yeah. Um, and so you all didn't start with hydrogen, correct? Yeah, that's right. The company went through tips and turns and uh, a lot of yeah. curveballs. So our founding mission was to make energy both cleaner and cheaper. It, it was to do like deep tech breakthroughs, right? If I think a lot of your audience will be familiar with Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Yeah. They're not our investor for some for frankly, a very simple reason that we predate their existence. So we took money from the original guy, Bill Gates, uh -huh. but it's the same thesis. It's the idea that we need to scale some existing solutions as fast as bloody possible, like solar and mm -hmm. wind, like you should go exponential on that. But there's a technical judgment, which may or may not be controversial, but we believe that's not going to solve everything. So there are yeah. hard to decarbonize sectors that probably need some new tech. And that's where you need crazy PhDs to try new science and technology to tackle those hard to decarbonize sectors. So that's our founding mission. And we were always very focused on heat. So heat is like half of energy demand. And actually, I think so about 80% of even electricity is mm -hmm. made from heat. Mm -hmm. And so we were very focused on the problem of heat. And actually, initially, we, we were developing a technology called, it, it, it's a very technical name, but it's a direct heat into electricity converter. And it can serve almost like uh, a solid state converter, but also a topping cycle to recover high grade energy from heat and convert that into electricity in something that doesn't require any maintenance and still reject a lot of high, still relatively high grade medium level heats that can either still run into other heating processes or steam turbine. But anyways, yeah. a way to boost efficiency of that of heat. So in layman's terms, how would that compare to what is common today? So most electricity on the planet is generated with a 130-year-old technology called a steam turbine, basically mm -hmm. a variation of a steam engine. Yeah. And frankly, it works very well. That's why it dominates the planet. Yeah. And, but it's, you, right, it's funny. Even nuclear power plants with all that fancy nuclear physics boils water. Right. And then the steam that, turns like a fancy right. yeah. wheel. That's a steam turbine. So this technology is solid state that... Ah directly manipulates the electrons with electric fields to directly produce that ele electric voltage. And so what would, this is probably a stupid question, but what would produce the heat in this situation? Also for them, because we don't believe China is going to decommission any of them mm -hmm. soon. And also gas, biogas, solar thermal, mm -hmm. nuclear, 
we were just trying to improve the efficiency of the converter. So basically, in other words, you don't have to uh, spin a turbine. Yeah. You could just heat this. Yes, that's right. Or even better, maybe you put this in front of the turbine. This mm -hmm. gets a bit technical, but essentially it's like a dual stage. You, you have dual stages to get more efficiency out. We take some of the heat, convert it uh, into electricity, and our heat, rejected heat, is still hot enough to run another turbine, which ah. converts even more of it. Ah. And you get more efficiency. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's what you all began working on. Yeah. And you all were called Modern Electron. That's right. At this point. Yeah. And were you also working on hydrogen in tandem with, with this heat to electricity converter? Not from the very beginning, but we've also been working on hydrogen for, God, over four years now. So essentially, again, this, <laughs> I was just rereading hard things about hard things. Yes, yeah. Some right. my gnarly problem of the day. Yeah. And it's, there is no textbook solution. So I do not recommend any other startup do this because startups are supposed to focus. <laughs> okay. And focus is incredibly important. Okay. Steve Jobs is right. Important to say no to most things. Right. But our company, <laughs> yeah. uh, as we went down the journey of trying to commercialize the first technology, we were talking to all the big energy appliance makers in the world of, hey, if you're making some heating equipment, can we put our thing in? It'll make your heating equipment more efficient because now instead of just producing heat, it'll produce bonus electricity. It'll save money and reduce efficiency effectively at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to make that happen. And we're talking to everybody and especially in Europe now, almost four or five years ago, everybody's asked us the question you just asked me of, hey, what's your fuel source? Is this compatible with hydrogen? Mm. And we're like, why are you asking about hydrogen? Yeah. You're not burning that today. Yeah. But that led us into, right, these are all like deep behind the scenes conversations back in the day. And this is before the hydrogen cycle came back, I think, publicly in the news. But yeah. we learned that the regulators in Europe at the time were already pushing uh, all these things onto the big major players. And they were all freaking out and already building hydrogen compatible systems. Mm. And uh, as the weird nuances of innovation works, right, we have a bunch of tech nerds in the company. We come up with ideas all the time. In fact, the modern electron name wasn't because we were doing something to do with electricity. Right. It was because I was trying to do an homage to General Electric, mm. which sounded like a good idea at the time. <laughs> right? like, this is before, yeah, this is, I'm not going to name any names, right? But this is before right. General Electric that had its major crash and fall. Yeah. But for a century, General Electric provided yeah. some of the staples of modern civilization. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted a company name to be a match of that. So we were inventing mm -hmm. like all sorts of stuff. And we mm -hmm. had actually invented a hydrogen producing technology and like many things we put it on a shelf, like yeah. a something maybe box. Uh -huh. But then we learned people were actually interested in a hydrogen. And so mm -hmm. in a, one of our regular update meetings with Bill Gates, we just, hey, so we have the technical idea, but we also heard that unlike most of our other ideas, people are looking for a way to get hydrogen and get hydrogen on site. Cause that was one of the key things that when we were hearing the story, that was the part that didn't make sense to us, right? Like people are building like these efficient, like these heating systems for commercial buildings, residential buildings, industrial facilities. There's no hydrogen pipeline, like as hydrogen to right. any of these facilities, but we had this idea of producing hydrogen in distributed fashion. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, Hey, maybe there's something here you want to, throw some extra budget at this just to do some skunk works. So that's how we started doing two things at the same time. Which... Okay. So did you like 
then hire a new team to work on that independently? Yeah, that's right. We initially hired a new team to work on that. So we were parallel tracking. Bill gave us enough rope to hang ourselves with. (laughs) Fortunately, you didn't have to hang yourself. That's a good thing. And so before we fully dive into hydrogen, because we're already walking that way, I want us to talk about the elephant in the room, which is natural gas. Yeah. Let's give people an idea of how reliant we are on natural gas at this point. Almost obviously one of the biggest energy sources in the world. Mm-hmm. To give folks in America idea, I think there's mostly American audience. In the US, uh, if you remove the oil from the equation, then natural gas is half of everything else, which means natural gas is as big as coal, plus nuclear, plus hydro, plus solar, plus wind. Mm. Altogether, probably same size as natural gas. I think gas is actually still a bit bigger. Mm. So we're pretty reliant on that. And how much has that grown over the past years? Like how has the mix changed? Uh, natural grown, gas has grown a lot, especially in the USA, because frankly, because of the fracking revolution, mm. uh, producing very cheap natural gas and a lot of gas has substituted coal, which actually mm. I think you look at the numbers and gas replacing coal has reduced about the same amount of CO2 emissions as all the solar and wind uptake as well. Mm -hmm. And I think this was rationalized even by some of the more moderate environmental minded folks as that natural gas is served, serves as a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a problem, right? You you burn it, emit CO2. And there's also upstream emissions. Mm -hmm. And so how are we usually utilizing natural gas? So for something, again, like if it's as big as all those things combined, it's a lot. So Mm. think primarily energy, but also some materials, I'll say chemically. Let me mention the smaller version first, just to make a point. Because again, this goes to like how I am not... I'm not actually an optimist. I like to think of myself as a realist, but I have a very dour mathematical view of the look. I can, the numbers just freak me out. So natural gas today is used to actually make hydrogen through a very polluting process called steam methane reforming. It's also called gray hydrogen, but anyway, it emits a bunch of CO2. But then this hydrogen is then mostly used to make ammonia, which is a fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And that ammonia and basically for gets into our food, how big is this? Yeah. Minority. That's the yeah. minority. Yeah. Most of it is used for energy, not, not as like a, a feedstock and a chemical mm-hmm. process. And, and, and energy uh, for electrons to do what kind of work? Yeah. So some of it is used in power plants, right? To produce electricity directly mm-hmm. through like gas turbines or actually combined, combined cycle gas and steam turbines. Mm-hmm. But also actually a huge amount of it is used for industrial energy, especially heat of all grades. So half of, get this, half of residential energy in the U.S. is home heating, which is a primarily mostly natural gas today. That's slowly changing and that needs to change. In Europe, this is why the Ukraine war really screwed them. U.S., sorry, Europe home energy, because Europe is more north as a continent and colder, 80% of residential energy in Europe is heating. 80. Um, so 20, electricity is only 20%. And most of that is also gas. 
-hmm. And then again, residential is not even like the majority. Most of the gas is used for commercial and industrial. And now you're thinking factories, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And much harder to decarbonize use cases. I think Mm -hmm. melting steel, melting iron, melting glass, melting silicon, making concrete, which has a 1500 Celsius step, making paper and pulp, making food and beverages, everything. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. we're fracking, right? the ground people go look at what fracking is and how it works they don't understand which interestingly enough when you step back and you look at this whole conversation fracking was i would have to say was actually came from a national lab yeah right a u.s national lab not too long ago at least it was not commercialized too long ago so the whole idea that fracking is now common parlance it's i think more modern history or recent yes. history it's like the last 20 years really there was this guy called george mitchell that banged his head on the problem for for another like few decades before that but he yeah. finally cracked it but it took a lot of effort and there was a lot of government support for that innovation mm-hmm. it's not some private sector magical capitalism story it was a multi-party mm-hmm. thing and so the idea is here that potentially we could use hydrogen mm instead of natural gas produce the heat that we need to power i guess the heavier lift or work things that that it does for example producing steel so on so forth is that the general idea basically it's not just heat but generally try to replace natural gas with hydrogen with the simple observation that natural gas is mostly CH4, methane, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's mostly hydrogen. Mm -hmm. What you don't like about it primarily is when you burn it emits CO2 because of that single carbon sitting there. Mm -hmm. So why don't you just take the carbon out, then you have clean hydrogen. And yeah, very simply put, what our company does as our main business Mm -hmm. is decarbonize natural gas into clean hydrogen at the point of use. Okay, now let's deconstruct that. One, how does that work? And then two, how does that compare to other ways that folks are going about producing hydrogen? Great question. So number one, how it works, it's a technology called methane pyrolysis. Um, Metaphorically, it's very simple in the sense that you put natural gas in a box Actually, you put any gas. In fact, we have a project with biogas, which is really cool. You should ask me about the biogas thing okay? because uh, that's going to be the long-term future. You, you put CH4 in a box with no oxygen and then you heat it up really hot. It will naturally break into solid carbon and mm-hmm. hydrogen. Interestingly, you can think of this as a way to do pre-combustion carbon capture. And this is really important because post-combustion carbon capture, of course, there's a lot of smart people working on it. It's really important. But it's CO2. It's a gas. It's mm-hmm. re- Gases are just way harder to do Art. with than solids. It's way less dense. Like, how do you capture it? Like, yeah. how do you filter it, capture it? And yeah. then you have to put it into ground. It's a gas. It wants to bubble back up. How right. do you sequester it into the ground permanently? Right. Whereas solid carbon is not just easier to handle, but it's not a waste. It's a useful product. Like, mm-hmm. uh our material is called carbon black. It's a known commodity. It's sold and used regularly in, in industry. It's like actually, it's also worth way more than carbon credits by an order of magnitude. Mm. But like it's used. So like you can capture the carbon and actually use it in economy. 
and it's not waste for you to dispose of. Plus, like who knows how long the CO2 stays in ground. Whereas a solid right. carbon, well, that's not turning back into CO2 unless yeah. you, you know, blowtorch it. So and what, what, what is it the use case? Elegant. What is the use case? Like carbon fiber, like products? Uh, or... So there, there are different grades of carbon and different companies doing things, but primarily most carbon back is used in things like rubber, mm-hmm. asphalt, mm-hmm. and things, and then more special things like roof shingles, and you can even mix it into concrete. Okay. So let's step back again. So you are basically putting this in a, putting the nat gas or not into a box. Yeah. You're heating it up and the carbon's becoming a solid form, which you're extracting. Then you're left with hydrogen. Yeah, that's right. At the source point, mm. not post. Mm. And, and then you're able to use that carbon or sell it off. Like it's a profit center. And then the hydrogen is getting distributed. Just a quick question. Like, how are you pro- producing the energy to, to heat up the, yeah. the natural gas? We're actually using a bit of the hydrogen we produce to heat up the reaction. Ah. Technically, you can use the gas as well. But if you want to be completely right. clean, you can use yeah. the hydrogen. Oh, okay, so it's like a closed loop system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. And so we don't, that's a cool thing, right? Like we don't need much electricity at all to do this. Mm-hmm. And we also don't need water. And so are you doing this then, like you say, at point of source, is this, let's say, at a commercial facility on site, like literally yeah. they pipe in the nat- the natural gas, you're performing this operation, like literally there, so you're not having to, to distribute the hydrogen. The most important point of our technology Mm-hmm. If I had to say a like two words of what really we're doing, skipping infrastructure, mm-hmm. we skip infrastructure. That's the most important part of the value prop. Mm-hmm. I have to go a bit technical here of why that's really important. Yeah, I know everybody's talking about infrastructure nowadays, but mm-hmm. you've heard about the electricity grid. There's what six million miles of electricity grid lines in the country, and last year there were a hundred miles. I think were permitted. Mm-hmm. And those efforts took 15 years. Mm-hmm. So being able to reuse existing infrastructure is essential to speed of actually being able to decarbonize. And then it gets worse when you look at hydrogen, because here's the thing. There's a, frankly, we're in a hydrogen hype cycle right now. There's, there's clearly going to be like the next solar wind. It's going to be huge. But some of yeah. the use cases are crazy. Like yeah. it's not everything's going to work. Let's be frank. Can I be frank? Like I've met, I met hydrogen people before I'd say it's starting to mature the last few years before this, I I would interact with some hydrogen people and they were pretty crazy in general. So yeah, (laughs) it was more my experience. So here's the technical reason why there are hard parts of the hydrogen economy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, don't take my word for it. In fact, I actually, I'll, I'll go, go Google a report for the yeah. audience from the National Research Council to analyze the hydrogen economy from about mm-hmm. 2004, 2005. Because yeah. if you roll back the clock, I'm, I'm older than I look, go to like first term George W. Bush. Yeah. And you may George remember Bush. hydrogen refueling stations yeah. at all that push where we're going to have like Toyota Mirai's everywhere. Yeah. And, but then it didn't really take off. So they basically got basically the premier government, ser- government starting research body to analyze, okay, Let's get deep in tech. Let's roll up and look at the techno-economics. And here's the issue. Hydrogen is the lightest element in the universe. Mm-hmm. Most abundant, sure, but lightest, which means it has incredibly low 
volumetric energy density and makes it one of the hardest fuels to mm-hmm. transport, distribute, and store. Mm-hmm. To give you a sense, first you have the compressed hydrogen. Uh, if you have to move it around, and a compressed hydrogen tank, even mm-hmm. after compression, versus the same volume gasoline tank, the hydrogen mm-hmm. tank only has about ten percent of the of the energy in the gasoline tank. Ah. Uh. Yeah. In normal conditions, now you could liquefy it, and it'll become a lot more dense, a lot more practical. Yeah, but hydrogen only turns into liquid at twenty Celsius above na- absolute zero, negative two hundred and fifty Celsius. Yeah, it's crazy cryogenic temperature. So if you have to turn it to liquid, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's crazy. And, and talk about you, you range can, anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, you can do it, but it's just it becomes really expensive and really energy consuming to get mm-hmm. to like, those conditions. Now, hydrogen can be transported through pipes. We know how to do that very well. There are two thousand miles of hydrogen pipelines in the country already. Two thousand, I think, a bit short of two thousand. But non-tech, except for the fact that these are dedicated hydrogen pipes, you cannot ship hydrogen, at least not a hundred percent hydrogen, through normal pipes that we use to transport our gases today. Yeah. So, two thousand miles of hydrogen pipes. Versus in the U.S. alone, three million miles right. of natural gas transmission distribution groups. Two thousand versus three million,、mm-hmm. and you cannot reuse those three three million miles of gas pipelines to ship hydrogen around without modification.、Mm-hmm. So going again, right? Infrastructure. If you produce hydrogen, fine, but how are you going to get it to customers? Because、yeah. you can't reuse the existing gas grid without heavy modification. Right. And. So, Good luck trying to if you want hydrogen soon, clean hydrogen soon. Good luck waiting for new hydrogen pipelines to be permitted to the same scale as the gas yeah. grid. Yeah. So the main value prop that we're doing is, yeah, we're making the observation that natural gas is already mostly hydrogen, and the infrastructure is there. God, I don't want new natural gas pipelines to be built, but、yeah. there's three million miles of it shipping around this huge energy source of country.、Mm-hmm. And why don't we just reuse all that existing infrastructure? That gas is already being used. People are going to already use it. Why don't we strip out the offending carbon atom at the end? Then、yeah. the hydrogen is just immediately produced on sites where it will immediately be consumed. That means、right. you don't need to build any new infrastructure to transport、yeah. and distribute hydrogen. Yeah, and all the、uh, shale people are happy, right? Because they can continue fracking and and producing natural gas. I guess the one issue you do run into is, of course, like the methane、yeah. uh, emissions that come from the actual fracking process. Yep.、Uh, though there are a lot of companies、yeah. that are working on on solving that, but I guess that's、yeah. the one problem. But at the same time, net, you're probably it's probably a big win、yeah. emissions wise from not needing to actually combust. Yeah. It's a huge problem, the upstream emissions, because we all know over a century timescale, methane has more than twenty-five per x, twenty-five、yeah. x, not twenty-five percent, twenty-five x,、yeah. the global warming potential of CO two. Frankly, it's a big problem. But if you look at the majority of global warming potential, it is still, I think, it, de- it depends on the leakage rates and all that. But about seventy-five percent of your footprint is still when you burn the natural gas and it turns、right. into CO two. We're startup. Trying、yeah. to do as least things. We're cleaning up one end of the pipe, and、right. someone else needs to clean up the other end of the pipe.、Right. Our observation is that a huge amount of gas has been、yeah. used, and we have a way to clean up one end of the pipe. And so、right. we're going to go and do that. But people need to do everything else. 
Yeah, it's the most logical thing uh, yeah. if if you want to move quickly. Yeah, including right? you know finding replacements for gas. Yeah, you all therefore change your name advantageously, I assume, yeah. from modern electric uh, electron to modern hydrogen because of this big interest in hydrogen and that has rocket hydrogen fuel put into it by the IRA. Yeah. Right. I think the most generous subsidy in the IRA is probably for clean hydrogen, but only yeah. if you can get it really clean. It's just fair. It's, it looks generous, but then you, you have to get emissions real low. It's a nonlinear response to how clean it gets. So it incentivizes the right behavior. Could that potentially, do you all fit into that? Or? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yep. It's, that's the point. It's really trying to make clean hydrogen instead of dirty hydrogen. Yeah. I heard that basically if you do qualify, you're essentially getting paid to produce hydrogen. It's this, <laughs> a lot of things have to go right, but I believe yeah. in certain areas again it depends on the energy prices i know uh, that uh, there will be possibilities for us to have negative operating cost after the subsidy right now right. i never want to count on a subsidy no that's, that's how long is it supposed to go on for I, i'm 10 years 10 years yeah right so that's certainly yeah. enough time yeah. as a actually a bit longer than that in the sense that you just need to get the prod you need to get the facility up and running by like the end of the decade oh yeah. so that should hopefully provide you all with uh, enough runway as a business to to sort yeah. it out where your OPEX makes sense. Yeah, it helps us new technology, right? Classic startup journey. It definitely helps grease the wheels to scale down the cost curve and get to scale. And then mm -hmm. at the end of, that's what the government's betting on, right? It's the same thing with wind and solar back in the day. You get mm -hmm. a, you, you help it initially, but then at some point, the private market has to take over and it has to be intrinsically competitive. Mm -hmm. And where is modern hydrogen going from here what does the next couple of years look like for y'all yeah so <laughs> i think it's just we like to say we have two curves that need to go up and into the right uh -huh. one is how much how much money we're making how much money we're saving for customers basically uh -huh. and also how much co2 we're reducing for them and the two uh -huh. are directly correlated because frankly to be very clear again right like you can tell i'm probably not like, again i'm in the middle don't want to hype things too much hydrogen in many circumstances doesn't make sense as a fuel there's Frankly, nothing wrong with a fossil fuel. In many cases, it does not offer advantage. The main advantage is decarbonization. All our customers are using hydrogen because they want to decarbonize. Mm. That's the only reason to use it. Because it doesn't make economic sense. Mm. Yeah. Is that why? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. without external pressures, it is my sincere belief that in most cases, uh, hydrogen will never beats just burning a fossil fuel with just using the atmosphere as a great dumping ground, right? Yeah. It's just, it, you're adopting a new technology, you're installing new equipment. Mm -hmm. Fossil fuels have climbed down 150 years of cost curve. Yeah. Yeah, like going hydrogen is going to be a bit harder. But the practical reality is whether it's the carrots or the stick, right? Like most companies just for ESG reasons, financing reasons, social license to operate reasons, green incentives and supply chain considerations from their own consumers, or even the government stick regulations and government carrots incentives, they want to decarbonize. There's an effective price on carbon now, right? Even though there's not a literal price, there's an effective price that is now uh, added onto the cost of doing business, which is what is frankly necessary to decarbonize. And then that makes the economics positive by going right. to our solution. Okay. 
And before we get to the rapid fire portion of this conversation, I wanted to bring back up biogas because ah, yeah. asked me to. Yeah. Yes. Because here's the thing, right? Fossil fuels, we still need to get uh, rid of it in the long run. I wish I believe it was possible in the short run. I don't. Every yeah. tech, real credible technical book I've seen, it doesn't seem that this is going to happen in the next uh, 30 years. I think it's probably going to be 50 years. I hope we get rid of like a majority, like a good fraction of it in 30 years. Mm-hmm. But we still need to get there. But the issue is, right, like electricity is a third of the of total emissions right now. And maybe we can do more electrification and get there. But I just... I know there's an electrify everything movement. I think it's a good slogan. There are parts right. of it that makes a lot of sense. You know why the country uses that much natural gas? The delivered price of natural gas versus delivered price of electricity, right? Everybody talks about exponential decline of solar. Oh, like you got one cents per kilowatt hour, two cents per kilowatt hour. Go ask your utility, go ask a business, what is the price they're actually paying for electricity versus the fossil fuel, there's typically a three to four X differential. Yeah. That's why people use that much fossil fuels. People, it's, yeah. it's, people are voting with their wallets. And I'm, yeah. frankly, I don't know if it's cynicism or that, but I just think yeah. that's going to affect reality. Yeah. And so anyway, so we need to clean up the natural gas right now, but we still get, get rid of it in the long run. And then we also know that, frankly, even the Paris Agreement admits it. We've already dumped too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Right. So we need to somehow pull it back. Paris Agreement literally builds it in because there's no way, even if we meet our targets, which we're not, we've already still emitted CO2 to the atmosphere. What if you can try to check all these boxes at the same time? Because you can't electrify everything. Like, how do you electrify making a plastic, right? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so the cool thing, right? Biogas, right? Just using agricultural waste, you, you make biogas, which is same thing as natural gas, basically. It's methane. Mm. But it's carbon neutral because the plant absorbed the CO2 from the atmosphere and made it into, right, make it into a carbohydrate. Now, so biogas is carbon neutral. But then we, our technology pulls the carbon atom out of the biogas so that now when you burn it, there's not even any CO2 emissions. Right. And then we put the carbon into the economy, basically sequester it into built materials. Right. This is equivalent to pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting carbon into mm. the ground. And so this mm. is negative emissions, right? It's the holy grail. It's restoring our climate and atmosphere and mm. bring the CO2 levels back down, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it, it's like you check a bunch of boxes at the same time. Yeah. You start having a way to pull the CO2 out, yeah. out of the atmosphere. You enable the clean hydrogen economy. And now, yeah. right? And now you have this fuel solution for the hard to decarbonize use cases where electrification is going to struggle. Mm. And last but not least, right? The carbon is sequestered in a form that is frankly... I trust it more than CO2 being inje- injected by Occidental into a form right. of oil. To frack more. Yeah. 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 And I don't want to go down. Oh, I'd love to go down the biogas rabbit hole and go through the pros and cons yeah. of it. But that would probably take us another half an hour. Yeah. It's my guess. But just so that people who are listening to this understand, they can go do their own research. Basically, what is the primary source of bioproducts yeah the, the general term is also sometimes called renewable natural gas to to encompass a bunch of things but essentially mm-hmm. think agriculture and poultry is a mm-hmm. huge source so actually we have a project with the, this biogas to demonstrate negative emissions uh with a dairy farm 
So it's ah. a dairy waste, but you can right. also do it from agriculture. There is also other forms. For example, people try to capture the, we dump a lot of food, right? Into our waste. It's horrible how wasteful Americans are. And then the thing rots in landfills. So there's biogas come out of the landfills and people collect that. And that can also be used basically to provide essentially gas into a system that mm-hmm. is essentially essentially carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you, you want to capture that gas because otherwise it emits mm-hmm. in the atmosphere and it's worse. Yeah. It sounds like you need to put another team on this one. Fortunately, there, <laughs> uh, there's something called the LCFS credits in California that has incentivized folks to go after and capture the biogas. Yeah. So there are some major companies getting the biogas now. Got so, it. Okay. Uh, cool. Awesome. I hopefully won't stand up another business and get to focus. Although, although to be clear, like our our ambition is still to become the next General Electric. We will absolutely have additional technologies and product lines that I will announce in the future. Okay, fantastic. We'll have you back on the show when you do. Yeah. But until then, let's get to the rapid fire portion of this conversation. What are Mm -hmm. three books that have greatly influenced the way that you approach living life and or doing business? And you're welcome to cheat because that's just the entrepreneurial way by doing more than three if you'd like. Yeah, I got this question in advance. I immediately listed out six books uh-huh. before I read the three books. Right. Well, let's do uh, it. But very quickly, number one, if you're working on innovation in any field, read the book about Pixar. It's called Creativity Inc. by one of the founders. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's all about structurally how do you set up an innovative environment. Mm-hmm. And if you think about Pixar's track record, holy moly, in, in their first decade. And one thing that we've borrowed from it for our company values is like we have failure in our company values. We have fail well in our official company values. And that's borrowed from that book in the sense that you cannot have risk-taking if people do not have the psychological safety of failure, right? Like failure, like not allowing failure is worse than counterproductive. It's uh, a stifles innovation. So right. of course, you allow, like, rampant failure. So the yeah. nuance of how you capture that is hard. Read the book. Yeah. Number two, Man's Search for Meaning, a classic. A dark one. That's a- Victor Franco's Classic Holocaust literature. Again, it's about like... It's on the classic Holocaust list. That's a heavy need for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's about you always have freedom, no matter how dire the circumstances are. Mm -hmm. The one thing always provided to you is you can choose how you respond to a situation and feel about a situation, no matter how dire it is. Mm. Uh, I've reread this book many times, usually around New Year's Eve. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, perspective, right? Yeah. And also, if you if, again, if you want perspective, how good you have it? Yeah, read Holocaust literature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, third book, Creating the Twentieth Century, by Vaslav Smil, who is, I guess, he's not. He should be read more. He's Bill Gates' favorite author. I think, of course, Bill has read every other book. It's just extremely dry and for nerds, full of facts and figures and numbers, extremely quantitative, exacting. And again, give you a pretty pragmatic look. But it's also, I find it inspirational. I know Vaslav in the press has this, he, I think he's controversial in the clean tech circles, but he's, hey, look at history. This transition is not going to happen fast. And people's F you for killing my dream. Yeah. But again, their history doesn't repeat itself, but rhymes. But there's an inspirational component of sticking like fossil fuels used to be environmental. Because before we were getting fossil fuels, we were killing whales for the bloody oil, right? right? And right. so it's all perspective. And there was a lot of innovation that happened that frankly brought human civilization from a life that was nasty, brutish, and short into modern comfort. 
And mm -hmm. Vaslav, like his books basically describe that and mm -hmm. all the innovations that took place and how it went down. And mm -hmm. yeah, and then like part of that is the inspiration for trying to be the next General Electric. Mm, love it. Yeah. Fourth, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. It's by Richard Feynman, like the magician of magicians, if you're a theoretical yeah. physicist. It's on my bookshelf and I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, it's a fun read. Uh, yeah. He's known to be an iconoclast and a rebel. And yeah. so I think that gives me a bit of the rebellious nature of Wendy Bear. I didn't become a professor, I became an entrepreneur, but it's a little bit about doing things differently. Don't, yeah. don't follow the crowd. Cool. Uh, number five, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien. Uh, yeah. We're, again, nerds. Max and I are both, my co-founder and I are both huge Tolkien fans. I think most moral lessons can be found actually in the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, we recorded Toby Krauss, the yeah. co-founder of Lightship yeah. last week. And he, the only answer he gave this question was Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Sam is the hero and think about yeah. what it really meant, right? Yeah. And last but not least, The Lessons of History by a famous historian and his historians, Will and Errol Durant. They were like a couple, married couple. Again, a very pragmatic view of history and the lessons you can learn from, frankly, human nature, right? I think when you study history, you understand human nature and how organizations behave and societies behave. And God, there's just so many jewels of concise insights from that book. I won't repeat it here, but go read the. I had to reread it when we had, I won't I got, get political, but when there was an election recently, that made me question of, oh my God, what's happening? I, I had to go and reread that book to get historical perspective. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. Helps you have a mental model of, of the world. Love it. Cool. And the second question is, what are three startups or climate tech startups that you love and you want everybody else to know about? Again, you can cheat a little here. Yeah, uh, <laughs> three. I just look at my notes and I realized I wrote down four. I am not being able to like narrow things down focus, do. right? Yeah. Uh, number one, TerraPower. I think the world's largest nuclear fission startup. Yeah. They're actually a sister company of ours. We spun yeah. out from the same incubator. In fact, the founding reason, remember when I talk about the heat to electricity converter? One of the reasons why we got really excited about this is TerraPower was looking into making a novel nuclear reactor to make baseload cheap electricity, again, baseload like that, not subject to intermittency, and, but also be able to use a nuclear waste, which is a problem, but use a nuclear waste as a nuclear fuel, burn mm -hmm. the waste and turn it into an economic positive. So they, they had all these fancy nuclear physicists and doing like innovative work, but then they realized, that, again, then you heat water and turn yeah. a wheel. And so yeah. they're like, and then that was a year of Fukushima around all this happened. 2011, that was when I was first did my internship uh, with the incubator. And Fukushima happened around that time. And people were reminded, right, bad to have high pressure water and steam right next to a nuclear reactor, because that's the thing that expands and ex ruptures your chambers. Yeah. But there was no better way to do the, there is no other way to do the heat to electricity conversion. Yeah. So that, that was like the initial seeds of the excitement around what we were working on originally. I but, think and third part, phenomenal uh... technology. And I think yeah. So fundamentally important. I think Bill Gates also invested in them as well. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Part of cool. the what do we got next? Embry and a bit biased, right? To make solar and wind are intermittent, yeah. you also have to make them work. So the other thing you need, long duration energy storage. Mm -hmm. So it's just, mm -hmm. they've been, they're like part of the clean tech, I think 1.0 crowd. I think 
they have all the scars, all the lessons, they're scaling novel liquid metal battery technology. It's yeah. just something that will uh, intrinsically be cheaper than what lithium ion can ever get to. Yeah. Cool stuff. Ambry, A-M-B-R-I. Yeah. Uh, oh God. Third one, I'll just stop at third. Uh, Mainspring Energy. Uh, we're, we're kind of fans of them because they, they did what we, we, we did. Uh, they, they, they successfully did something that our old business tried to do. <laughs> right, and maybe envy is the best form of compliment. But they made this novel new engine called a linear engine that is more efficient, huh. so they can use fuels more efficiently. And again, like everything about just improve efficiency, because I always like efficiency plays. People, I feel people don't talk enough about it. Because if you improve efficiency, again from a real politic view, you're saving money and reducing emissions at the same time. Mm. And they have this novel linear generator that's more efficient that can be on sites. We also like distributed energy generation. Doesn't require new infrastructure, just use existing resources better. And then they can do com- things like combine heat and power on site, which is more efficient anyways, get more out of the fuel, and it's just good stuff. Awesome. I love it. All three are awesome companies. Cool. Yeah. And uh, final question before we wrap up, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with? Speed, right? Speed. I think yeah, I like it. Speed and realism. Maybe speed, but I go back to I have some friends who are working on the Yimbyism Yimbyism movement. Yes, in my backyard. Try to learn how this country can build stuff faster. Yeah. And we need it. But but there's trillions of assets underground. Yeah. And you you're seeing the heat waves right now. Yeah. We need to scale up as much of the new technologies and renewables as possible, but we need to forget, we can't like the, the main problem I, I encounter is purity tests. I'm, yeah. a, I'm an engineer trying to come up a solution. I don't get to have the comforts of just, I don't get the comforts uh, and security of applying purity tests. I think we need to find ways to clean up fossils and heavy industries like now, mm-hmm. instead of waiting later. Uh, and I think our solution and actually many other solutions that again, yeah. a lot of folks working on this, but you're a bridge to hydrogen. work with folks that can skip infrastructure, yeah. reuse existing things, like new solutions that can happen soon and doesn't right. require like a, several trillions of dollars because right. they're using things that exist. Yeah. I love it. And so you all are basically uh, a bridge to hydrogen. A very affordable bridge. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. just what can we do now? What can right. we do fast? Because yeah. things that can reuse existing infrastructure yeah. that actually are economical, doesn't require people to make a crazy leap, yeah. is going to happen faster. Yeah, I love it. And so after two Diet Cokes, it's been a pleasure to have you on this show. And I greatly appreciate your time and wisdom. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the questions. And yeah, I thanks for supporting the clean tech ecosystem. Yeah. Again, the other part of my real politic view is that yeah. there is no one solution. Yeah. We're going to need a hundred. Yeah. It's all hands on deck. Yeah. All hands on deck. Thank you so much. And cheers. Cheers. 
Thank you so much for listening. The resources that we mentioned and everything else we talked about, drink recipes, various people, companies, so on and so forth, will all be backlinked on the show notes on our Mothership's website at climatechcircle.com. If you want to write us, our address is m at climatechcocktails.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CT underscore cocktails and on Instagram at hashtag climatechcircle. You can reach me personally by Carrier Pigeon on my LinkedIn at forward slash Matthew J. Myers or at one of our in-person happy hour events. In the meantime, keep the dream alive and do your part to make the world a better place for 100% of humanity. And thanks for tuning in. Cheers.